Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 391 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory. Apollo Applications Program. I want to begin this episode with the Apollo Extension System, or AES. Most new space programs require at least five years to get off the ground. In the year 1965, the folks at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, recognized that after Apollo achieved its goal of landing on the moon, there would be a lack of future missions if new programs were not started soon as Apollo was accelerating on the moon program. Without new space projects, Marshall would be limited in its usefulness and its budget would be cut. Werner von Braun, who was in charge of Marshall, had the idea of using spent Saturn stages to create a space station. This seemed to be a good way for Marshall to gain an advantage over the other NASA centers for a new post-Apollo program. But to win any additional support in Washington for a budget to create a space station, a strong ally was needed. Marshall sought out George Miller, As their ally, Miller was NASA's associate administrator for manned spaceflight. Miller had already demonstrated an interest in developing Apollo's potential and had a strong desire to restrict the loss of personnel that would result from downscaling Saturn launch vehicle development teams as Apollo neared its goal. This idea went over like a lead balloon at MSC in Houston. To MSC, it looked like Marshall was trying to take over their job of the development of manned spacecraft. You see, each center at NASA had clear responsibilities, and though cooperation was necessary, any program was normally split between Washington who handled the budget and politicians, Houston, who designed the spacecraft and trained the astronauts, 
Marshall, who built the rockets and engines, and the Cape, where the rockets were assembled and launched. According to MSC, it was a, quote, birthright that Houston was in charge of manned spaceflight. After all, it's in the name. And to let another NASA center take that away was unthinkable. It turned out that this competition and battle between Houston and Marshall over management of manned spaceflight programs was the beginning of a long dispute that continued into the shuttle and ISS programs as well. To fund a new space station program, there was also a little bit of semantic trickery involved. The words new and space station had to be disguised under the shadow of Apollo. It was explained to the politicians that an orbital workshop would use hardware developed from Apollo after the moon landing and would only extend the capabilities of Apollo's system without developing radically new hardware. Only this allowed the space station idea to enter budget discussions in Washington. Several NASA officials explained that the idea of an orbital workshop was not really a program, as it used hardware already developed. It was just a way to move the whole idea forward. Miller testified, Apollo capabilities now under development would enable NASA to produce space hardware and fly it for future missions at a small fraction of the development cost. This was the basic concept in the Apollo Extension System. The AES program was being planned to include a number of follow-on missions after the initial Apollo lunar landings using proven Apollo hardware and techniques. The series would feature both lunar and Earth orbital objectives that included missions lasting between four and six weeks in lunar orbit, up to two weeks on the lunar surface, and crews remaining in Earth's orbit for up to three months. This, of course, would require an early demonstration of AES's capability of supporting later missions and systems development. It was decided that Houston would have lead responsibility for study contracts, and both Houston and Marshall would have responsibility for about half of the payload integration contracts. With cooperation from KSC, North American, and Grumman. Unfortunately, the battle between the NASA centers gradually worsened. In July 1965, a final report on modular multipurpose space stations was delivered. It contained a wide range of concepts from a small modified Apollo command service module 
two semi-permanent space stations. The range of proposals suggested six separate missions in four configurations, but emphasized the modular concept rather than an all-up-in-just-one-launch philosophy. This modular concept of building up a larger station from smaller elements was adopted on the Mir program as well as the ISS. The 1965 missions that were proposed ranged in length from 45 days to 10 years with various crew sizes. As a side note, Grumman also issued its final study report of AES Earth orbit missions for lunar module utilization. In a five-volume report, several lunar module configurations were offered, along with lunar module labs for extended stays in Earth or lunar orbit in conjunction with the Command and Service Module as part of the Apollo Extension System. As though there were not enough acronyms already, in August of 1965, NASA established the Saturn Apollo Applications Office, SAA, within the Office of Manned Spaceflight. The SAA would assume responsibility for the Apollo Extension System development. At Marshall, where Miller had allocated most of the planning for a possible space station design, serious consideration was being given to the concept of an S-4B orbital workshop, abbreviated OWS. Recall that the S-4B was the third stage of a Saturn V that put the spacecraft in Earth orbit and later fired to send it to the moon. The S-4B orbital workshop would involve the conversion of a spent S-4B stage to support an extended duration mission in Earth orbit for the crew perform useful experiments under the AES concept. As a result, a four-month conceptual study began at Marshall with assistance from Houston and from the prime contractor for the Saturn stage, the Douglas Aircraft Corporation. The study evaluated previous spent stage proposals as well as attempts to keep the design as simple as possible to minimize cost and meet early launch dates. One of the early requirements determined was the selection of suitable cabin atmosphere for expected long-duration missions later in the flight program. The nominal mission duration would be about 45 days, but studies were conducted to increase this to 60, 90, and 135 days. Studies of single gas, oxygen, and two gas, oxygen, nitrogen, or oxygen, helium atmospheres were conducted. 
A 100% oxygen environment at 5 PSIA was advantageous both scientifically and operationally and was attractive because of the simplicity of the design of the system. But studies of vital body processes included problems in flights of 100% oxygen over 30 days. The full oxygen atmosphere was also highly flammable. The following month saw the official division of responsibility between the three primary centers for manned spaceflight. The Manned Spacecraft Center, Houston, would be responsible for spacecraft development, the development of an airlock module to allow passage from the command and service module to the station, the flight crew activities, mission control and flight operations, and payload integration of the command and service module. The Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville would assume responsibility for the development of the Saturn launch vehicles, payload integration of derivatives of the AES model modified vehicles, such as the spent stage concept, and the lunar module labs. The Kennedy Space Center would handle all pre-launch assembly checks and the launch of all vehicles. But plans evolved. And now we have reached the Apollo Applications Program, AAP. Here's Werner Von Braun explaining the AAP program. Well, we have a program called the Apollo Applications Program that is specifically designed to make maximum use of out-of-the-art hardware developed in conjunction with the Apollo program but can be put to other uses. These uses will be all kinds of scientific work in orbit uh, and uh, some of the uses will involve uh, the study of new methods to get a hold, uh, a better hold on uh, Earth's resources. Uh, now, Earth's resources include such things as food and timber and ore and oil deposits and so forth, and uh, there is a very good uh, opportunity in conjunction with these orbital flights to develop sophisticated uh, sensing devices and photographic devices to determine from orbit what uh, crops one can expect or whether timber is afflicted by tree diseases or where one should uh, go prospecting for oil or tin or copper. Uh, of course, all this involves an, uh, a sizable research and development program. The capability does not exist at once, but uh, uh, this Apollo hardware can be used very effectively uh, to, uh, for this research and development work. In February of 1966, NASA's Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens, testifying before the House Committee for Manned Spaceflight, described the NASA Apollo Applications Program effort. He said, 
It consisted of the extension of orbital flights of up to 45 days or more by minor modifications to the basic Apollo system, the procurement of additional spacecraft and launch vehicles for follow-on missions beyond the initial Apollo lunar landing schedule, and the utilization of Apollo vehicles during 1968 through 1970, as long as the primary objective of landing on the moon was not compromised. In March of 66, NASA released its first AAP schedule. It projected a very ambitious 45 launches, 26 Saturn 1B and 19 Saturn 5 in both the lunar and Earth orbit phases of the program by the mid-1970s. Now these were separate from the mainstream Apollo lunar landing effort. Among these were three Saturn 4B spent stage experiment support modules. Wet workshops is what they were called, meaning that they were going to reuse the S-4B stage as a workshop after its fuel was spent. By the way, the astronaut office was not in favor of this due to the risk to the astronauts. Also to be launched were three Saturn V launched orbital laboratories and four Apollo telescope mounts. The first AAP launch was expected in April of 1968, depending upon progress with the Apollo lunar landing and assuming minimum modifications to the hardware and launch schedules. MSC Director Robert Gilruth sent a long letter to Miller expressing his misgivings on aspects of the AAP planning and even the use of Apollo hardware. In the communication, Gilruth offered an alternative schedule using Apollo hardware with nominal modification and a launch rate similar to the moon landing effort. However, he pointed out that with a slower pace, they might not maintain the momentum they had achieved in the manned spaceflight program. In April, NASA issued proposal requests to Douglas, Grumman, and McDonnell to undertake 60-day studies on the S-4B spent stage experiment support module, and there was an acronym for that, and it was called SSESM, Spent Stage Experiment Support Module. Four days later, definition studies, including costs and estimates for integrating the Apollo telescope mount with the lunar module structure, were issued to Marshall. The desired flight dates of the lunar module Apollo telescope mount structure were given as April 1968 and February 1969 and February 1970. Marshall would be responsible for development and modifications of the Apollo lunar lander to carry 
Apollo Applications Program Laboratory Kits, including the Apollo Telescope Module and provisions for orbital storage for three to six months between manned missions. With Marshall already handling the development of the S-4B spent stage, giving them the lunar module and the Apollo telescope mount only served to further enrage officials at Houston. The next month's NASA Administrator Jim Webb alerted Congress that if AAP was not granted additional funds in the 1968 fiscal year budget, the program would be in serious trouble. All post-Apollo projects were already being hindered by the Vietnamese conflict. Congressional discontent was escalating with NASA administration costs and an inability to completely combine the civilian NASA project with the Air Force Mole Space Station project. So Congress was not in the mood for more funding. By July, Marshall was selected as the lead field center for the Apollo Telescope Mount development, while MSC became the lead center for Earth resources. On July 12th, the strategy of post-Apollo space projects of scientists within NASA focused on Earth orbit missions, solar exploration, and astronomy missions, and how these could be applied to AAP. Later in July, Apollo mission number 209 was approved to launch an unmanned orbital workstation and docking module. A dual launch was planned with the airlock module on the manned mission 210, which would replace the lunar module and serve as a docking adapter at one end for the command and service module. The other end would have a sealed hatch connecting to the S-4B. This would provide a pressurized passageway into the stage. An oxygen supply would be provided for pressurizing the airlock module with the hydrogen tank to provide a shirt-sleeve environment after cleaning and outgassing the S-4B. This was intended to serve as a practical demonstration of the feasibility of the structure to support a space station spent stage concept. But in August, Chris Kraft, Director of Flight Crew Operations at MSC, began expressing grave concerns over potential difficulties in current AAP planning and hardware integration. From the plans issued in June 1966, MSC would be responsible for integrating only the command service module, while Marshall would integrate the S-4B stage, the Saturn Instrument Unit, and the Apollo Telescope Mount and the Lunar Module. Headquarters would be responsible for the total payload. 
Kraft considered it illogical that the scheme had two independent and parallel efforts for spacecraft payload integration at MSC and Marshall and argued that it was inconceivable that headquarters in Washington could take on a complex and detailed operational role. He called for clearly defined roles and suggested the traditional role for MSC of design and integration, with overall payload responsibility going to Marshall. The dispute between both main centers was beginning to become uncontrollable. As a response to Kraft's complaints, a meeting of the Manned Space Flight Management Council at Lake Logan, North Carolina, where center responsibilities were defined, was called. It was confirmed that the Marshall Space Flight Center would have a role in developing manned spacecraft. Despite the existence of some judiciary arrangements, such as Marshall being in charge of propulsion and MSC being in charge of the command post. The idea of modularization was adopted, as long as it was not too complex, complete parts of a spacecraft could be assigned to separate field centers for development. This concept developed into the lead-slash-support center arrangement, where the lead center held overall responsibility for management issues and set hardware requirements for the support center, which oversaw direct module development. For the AAP, Marshall would become the lead center, overseeing the living quarters and laboratory components of the space station. MSC became lead center for mission operations while KSC remained lead center for payload integration and launch operations. Experiments were divided between MSC and Marshall. The idea of having two lead centers was intended to reflect the two phases of development and operations, but in reality, they rarely became distinct from each other as the program progressed. What happened was that Marshall became a contractor to MSC in supplying the orbital workstation hardware and developed and customized it according to MSC's recommendations for mission operations. The result was that the preliminary planning into the spent stage concept at Marshall evolved from strong debates within NASA to emerge as the best design to receive political acceptance and, in turn, funding. Although the meeting resolved center roles on paper and in operation, it was still to be a long, difficult road leading to launch. Then, sadly, in October, NASA headquarters cut Houston's AAP budget operating plan for fiscal year 1967 for both experiments and the orbiting workshop, $8.6 million for each. The 1966 estimate for the workshop mission was already $17 million, 
14 million on hardware and mission support and 3 million for currently assigned experiments. Obviously, without the money, the schedule could not be maintained. However, NASA did go ahead and add two more missions to the schedule, which now totaled four missions. Mission 209 and 210 would be essentially the manned workshop activation phase of 28 days. On the first day, the crew would perform internal and external EVAs to reconfigure the vehicle from a spent stage into the orbiting workshop. A total of 21 experiments were to be assigned to the mission. One technology, six Department of Defense, 11 engineering, and three medical. The second set of flights, missions 211 and 212, would be the solar astronomy and orbital assembly phase, lasting up to 56 days. According to this plan, the first launch would occur in June 1968. This was a radically new approach. Unlike the spent stage experiment support module design in which there would be limited rendezvous, no docking, and no habitation equipment, Although the plan still used the S-4B to put the payload in orbit, followed by the cleansing and pressurization of the hydrogen tank, the new concept also included habitation of the module. The orbital workshop would contain crew quarters, two floors, and walls installed on the ground prior to launch. The adapter module would now become an integral part of the orbital workshop and would not be launched separately. The multiple docking adapter would feature five docking ports allowing a command and service module and up to four science modules to dock at any one time and would also house most of the astronaut habitation equipment and experiments. This new AAP schedule called for 22 Saturn 1B launches and 15 Saturn V launches, including flights of two Saturn V workshops and four Lunar Module Apollo Telescope mounts. This resulted in even more further action items, including cost and scheduling, 27 priority items of configuration changes, workshop design, a decision on solar panels over fuel cells, the selection of a two-gas atmosphere over 100% oxygen, emergency procedure EVA requirements, experiment definition, Apollo vehicle modifications, and a definite plan for follow-on hardware procurement. In addition, a plan for test requirements, reliability, quality assurance, organization, and manpower requirements. On December 22nd of 1966, Miller wrote to Gilruth and Von Brown advising Marshall of the joint MSC HQ medical position regarding gaseous atmospheric selection. The medical position was based on retaining the 100% oxygen environment in the command and service module 
and a shirt sleeve environment in the workshop of 69% oxygen and 31% nitrogen at 5 PSIA. The 100% oxygen atmosphere would still be required for a suited emergency operation and EVA. As the year of 1966 closed, the question arose as to whether AAP should be portrayed as an open-ended program or as having a defined goal for actively marking its completion. There were discussions as to whether the program should include the capability of space rescue and the definition of its Earth orbital task. By the year's end, mission objectives for the first two flights, renamed AAP-1 and 2, were promoted as a low-altitude, low-inclination orbit for Earth Resources Study and biomedical research with a three-man crew for a maximum of 28 days using a spent S-4B. This could also provide a base for a second crew to reactivate the stage within one year to continue the medical studies as well as solar and celestial research and to test Earth observation passes of a proposed lunar mapping and survey system. On the eve of a ground test for Apollo 1, January 26, 1967, George Miller conducted a briefing explaining that NASA planned to form a developmental space station sometime in 1968 or 1969 by clustering four AAP payloads launched at different times. Firstly, a manned spacecraft would be launched, followed several days later by an S-4B that had been converted into the orbital workshop. After docking, the crew would enter the orbital workshop through an airlock. At the end of their 28-day mission, the crew would power down the orbital workshop and return to Earth. A few months later, a second manned spacecraft would be launched on a 56-day mission to deliver a resupply module to the orbital workshop and also to rendezvous with an unmanned Apollo telescope module. The fourth and last launch of the series. Miller saw the importance of a manned Apollo telescope mount as paramount. He stated at the meeting, quote, If there is one thing that the scientific community is agreed upon, it's that when you want to have a major telescope instrument in space, it needs to be manned. One day later, January 27, 1967, during a simulated countdown, a flash fire occurred inside Apollo spacecraft AS-204, Apollo 1 claiming the lives of the prime crew, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. As a result, the effort to reach the moon by 1970 was delayed by the inquiry and the implementation of the recommendations. Consequently, the AAP slipped further into the background as a stunned nation recovered from the fire 
and the price that the three astronauts had paid to achieve President Kennedy's goal. But Grissom's earlier comments on the risk of spaceflight reflected not just the spirit of reaching for the moon with Apollo, but also all other aspects of space exploration. He said, quote, If we die, people should accept it and get on with the program. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 391 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory, the Apollo Applications Program. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you need to contact me, please use the new email address, spacerockethistory at gmail. Don't use the old one as it has been out of service for quite some time. Email is really the best way to contact me because I check it much more often. Our next episode should be released by June 30th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 211 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes. Who knows why? My Twitter handle is working again. Of course, I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking of the account, but it's back up again. My handle is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hiss, so if you'd like to follow, you can. I'm now up to 143 followers. And you can also follow me on Facebook if you like, and you can also keep up with me on patreon.com slash History where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things. Had a couple afterthoughts. I want to apologize for my mispronunciation of words and names. Well, what did you think about those Grumman studies about using the limb as a laboratory or a telescope mount? Now that is really making use of current equipment. And why not use it? It would be proven on the moon. It had a docking port, a descent stage that could be used for the telescope mount, and it could be manned in the ascent stage. The idea for its use evolved quite a bit. They were going to put it on top of the S-4B stage and have the astronauts EVA to it or use the command module to dock with it. Then, when they came up with the AAP cluster, they had it docked to the adapter module. 
So, as the studies continue, the ideas keep evolving until they arrive at the final design. And that is what I'm trying to present each episode, the evolvement of the design. Also keep in mind that they are still thinking about a wet design. It doesn't become dry until later. So at this point in January 1967, the first crew of the orbital workshop would have to clean out the spent S-4B stage before use, which to me seems very difficult and possibly dangerous. Another thing that kind of struck me was the scope of the AAP project and how much they were planning to do with it, such as four to six weeks of lunar orbit missions and possibly returning to the moon's surface with a limb from the workshop. Now that would have been something if they could have done all all of that. What we got was not close to that, but it would have been an amazing thing to see. Were you aware of the NASA centers fighting over the workload on the AAP? I did not know it got that bad. Houston versus Huntsville. But I can understand it. Because Marshall was taking away work that would normally be done in Houston. But the infighting got so bad that they actually had to have a peace summit in North Carolina. <laughs> Pretty interesting. For those interested in the house project, we've been moved in for about two and a half months now and loving it. Over the past fortnight, sadly, there were no items knocked off the punch list. I think they're trying to forget about us and just sort of walk away. But there are items, and a big item is just getting our window screens because we can't even open up the windows without letting the bugs in now. And that's going to be, that would be a lot nice to have in the fall to be able to open up the windows. Anyway... We did notice some mildew growing on some fabric in the basement over in a corner that didn't get a lot of ventilation. So I checked the humidity and it was over 70%, something over 70%. I don't remember exactly what it was. So we called the builder who offered no help except to say, we always recommend running dehumidifiers in basements. So I had to buy a large dehumidifier and it runs constantly. And then it has to be emptied every three or four hours of water. You have to take the bucket out and throw it outside or dump it in the bathtub or something. But the humidity did finally get down into the 50s. So I guess it's working. It's just something that we have to deal with. I'm, I'm going to try to work out some kind of drain situation with that Uh Humidif dehumidifier, drain it into a sink or something if I can. I might have to put a sink in to do it, though. <laughs> it's funny, the last two houses I lived in had basements, and I didn't have any humidity problems down there. None. So I may, either I've been lucky or something's not quite right. 
I've been posting pictures of the house every other week on Patreon. Last week, I posted a picture of Mr. and Mrs. SRH standing in front of the house. And I think many of you enjoyed it, and I appreciate your comments. I'm thinking of posting a picture of the basement next time if I get permission from Mrs. SRH. You see, it is a little messy down there. We haven't quite got everything in its place yet. Or, if you have a special request picture, reply to this post on Patreon, and I will see what I can do for your special request. To view all the posts on Patreon, type into your browser, space, I'm sorry, type patreon.com slash space rocket history. Just type it into your browser. It'll go there. Click on post and you'll see the post. And that is your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received two donations. I would like to thank Tom Z from Germany who donated at the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji and Warren A who donated at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors are at 255. We've lost one as the month transitioned there. And our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 324. With, uh, with an overall goal of reaching 500 for the year. So, if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running nine years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the patreon link or if you would like to donate by mail that works great for me please use my new permanent address which has been active for about 10 months if you don't know what that is please email me and i will give it to you my email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. As some of you may know, we have a large field with canola planted, and it is almost time to harvest. The grandkids are anxiously awaiting because then they'll be able to launch model rockets with Mike. That's going to be a real treat, and I can't wait either. Now for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Don Phillips. Don Phillips, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com Tell us your address and your prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 324 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA, The Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 392 
posted by June 30th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.